This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is brought to you by Artbase. Did you know that Artbase is the best love software in the art world? Artbase offers products that do everything you need to run your art business. Track your art and your contacts and cross-reference them. Make invoices, generate consignments, run all kinds of reports, even use it on your iPad or iPhone at art fairs or while you're away. Take it from the thousands of happy Artbase clients all over the world. Artbase is the right software for your art business. Visit ArtBase.com to find out more. Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. In this week's episode, we're joined by author and dealer Richard Polsky, who's recently the founder of Richard Polsky Art Authentication. Richard, it's great speaking with you and having you back on. How have you been? Doing well, Adam. Thanks for having me on again. We've had you on the podcast many times. I've always enjoyed it. And we most recently had you on last October, just shortly after you announced your authentication business, which was launching at at the time, focused exclusively on authenticating Andy Warhol's. Uh, before we get into some new news about some other artists you've, you're branching out to include as well in your services, tell us how things have gone so far with uh, the authenticating business when it comes to Warhol. Well, it's interesting. Um, when I first started the, the Warhol authentication business, there was a lot of pent-up demand by collectors and dealers to get their paintings authenticated. And it was amazing the number of calls I got. I'm not saying all of them panned out. Some of them turned out to be ridiculous. Um, I certainly, you know, encourage people to call me first before I take a look at their paintings just to make sure, you know, it's something I'd I'd get involved in and can do the job and do it well. But um, what happened was, like I said, we got off to a fast start, got a lot of calls, quickly got a lot of customers, And then I noticed after a few months, the business started to dissipate a bit. And I realized that um, my focus was too narrow. I needed to branch out into other artists. But the question, of course, always becomes, you know, as as an art expert, what can you do and what can you do well? And I had to be very careful to choose two artists uh, who were Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat, where I felt there was a symbiotic relationship between them and Warhol. Certainly during the 80s, as we all know, Basquiat and Warhol did collaborative paintings, and Basquiat, Warhol, and Keith Haring certainly hung out a bit in the 80s, a bit of the club scene then. Uh, so it made some sense. But the thing that's most interesting to me is that all three of these artists, their authentication boards, which were controlled by their estates, one out of business at around the same time. Uh, Warhol went first. And then it was like a domino effect where you had Basquiat, Herring, Roy Lichtenstein. There were others. They all decided, why are we doing this? We've done this for years. We've probably authenticated, you know, majority of the work that's out there. We don't need the aggravation. We don't need the suits, meaning the lawsuits. Um, as the Warhol board put it, we'd rather give our money to artists than lawyers. Absolutely. And so let's dig deeper into each of these two artists, Keith Haring and Basquiat. Starting with Basquiat, uh, you mentioned that the authentication services for both of these artists no longer uh, is in operation. Um, For Basquiat, uh, who was authenticating uh, at the time and um, what are kind of some of the key topics or issues um, that you're dealing with when you're looking at authenticating a Basquiat? Okay. Uh, Basquiat, as most of your listeners, I'm sure know, had a a meteoric career, uh, burnt out very young, died 
I don't know, was he 27, 28? Left behind, though, a substantial body of work. He was a workaholic. He produced a lot of paintings and a lot of drawings. And there was a very competent Basquiat authentication board. Um, I know Jeffrey Deitch was part of it. A guy named Fred Hoffman was part of it. And they did a very good job. I think uh, you may know John Chime, who was the director at Robert Miller. I believe he was involved. You know, I was the gallery Chime and Reed. And you have a situation where um, you have all these, you know, these experts who did good work, took it very seriously, um, and you know, it, it just gets to a point where uh, a degree of frustration, let's say, sets in, where you get all these people who are very upset when you turn you turn their painting down. It leads, you know, it leads to, like I say, a lot of grief in your life. When people say, well, wait a minute, you don't know what you're talking about. Why, why did you turn my Basquiat down? This is real. I'll tell you why it's real. I used to hang out with them. And, you know, and they go on and on. They, they paint these crazy stories. And, you know, there's, it's, it's just Basquiat and Herring, for that matter, are two of the easier artists to fake. And uh, you, it's amazing what you see, what comes to you. In Basquiat's case, what I see a lot of are paintings that are almost too perfect. In other words, someone will flip through a Basquiat catalog and they'll say, wow, a lot of these paintings have crowns in them. So they'll include a crown in the composition. Then they'll say, wait, he did you know, a lot of athletes or jazz musicians. So they'll throw in an athlete and a jazz musician. And suddenly you have a painting that's almost too perfect. Everything's too evenly spaced. Um, it, it becomes almost obvious to anyone who knows the material that this is not a Basquiat, but you see a lot of this. And let's look now at Keith Haring. Um, tell us about um, his authentication services and why they're no longer uh, operating. And again, what are some of the key uh, visual aspects of his works or compositions that you are looking at or other issues when you're trying to authenticate one? Well, with Keith, again, it's, he's a little easier to fake than Basquiat. Um, as you probably know, Keith got a start in, uh, I'm guessing it was the uh, early 80s, uh, doing subway drawings. Um, they may have gone back as far as 1979. I'd have to look at my notes. But as you probably know, he'd go down New York subways. Whenever there was advertising uh, the, the, you know, there were these panels, they'd glue down ads promoting banks or groceries or you name it. And whenever the ad ran its course and the date, date was up for it to run, it would be peeled off and they would adhere a black, a black sheet of paper there. It almost looks like black construction paper. And Keith would come down the subway, look both ways, make sure there weren't any transit cops, and he'd do his thing. He'd do a drawing, you know, with white chalk. He did these drawings, let's say, um, two to three minutes. They were that quick, and he produced thousands of them. And the interesting thing is the authentication board uh, that handled Keith's work, they never authenticated any of these. They didn't acknowledge them. They claimed that Keith didn't want these seen as works of art, which actually wasn't true. He did want them seen as works of art, he just didn't want them sold. They were not done for commerce. So my point is, you have thousands of these 
subway drawings that are out there that have never been authenticated. It's really crazy. But again, you ask about the board. They did a, they did a good job, just like the Warhol board did a good job, and just like the Basquiat board did a good job. But it's an overwhelming task for all of them. Keith uh, Herring, uh, his board, they went out of business again because of lawsuits. They got tired of being sued and wasting money defending them. Um, one last point, you ask what, what an authenticator looks for. Like I said, in Basquiat's case, it's the composition where they're too perfect. In Herring's case, Herring had a very unique line. He had this uncanny talent where he could start one of his drawings, go from the left-hand corner of the page to the right-hand corner, and do one of his crawling babies with the radiating lines coming off. Um, it's a single, uninterrupted line. Um, it's like one of these unusual God-given talents. He could do that. The fakes, you see, don't have that line. Um, people try. They can't do it. So that's what you look for. You mentioned the fact that the authentication services for both Herring and Basquiat have gone out of business primarily because of the cost of litigation. As you, you're trying to step in their shoes and authenticate Herring's, Basquiat's, as well as Warhol's, you're already doing so, are you not fearful of being exposed to similar costs, and how do you uh, prohibit that from occurring? Well, what you've asked, Adam, is the question I'm asked the most. Um, when I announced I was going into this, you wouldn't believe the number of calls I got from people who said, geez, I hope you have a good lawyer, or I hope you have you know, this or that to defend yourself. And what I've tried to explain to people is that the greatest defense against being sued as an art authenticator is transparency. In other words, if you brought a painting to the Warhol people, you would sign a disclaimer. And I also, by the way, have people sign. It's a very simple, let's say, one-page disclaimer, basically saying you're not going to sue me if you don't agree with my opinion. So people would go to the Warhol board, they'd turn in the painting, they'd sign the disclaimer, and they gave the Warhol board permission to take a rubber stamp and stamp the back of the painting denied. They thought it was a counterfeit, okay? And when you got your painting back, obviously you'd be pretty upset. You'd be like, oh no, my painting's ruined and it's not real and it's not worth a lot of money. But then you'd, you know, you'd just say, okay, okay, I guess that's the way it went. And you'd ask them, why did you turn it down? And they wouldn't tell you. They said they didn't want to aid counterfeiters. And then you'd not only be bummed out, but you'd be downright angry. Because it's like you have this fake and you don't know why. What I try to do with people is say, look, whether it turns out to be real or not, get a two-page document from me with bullet points outlining the facts as to why this is real or why this isn't real. By being completely you know, open about how I came to my conclusion, that, that seems to satisfy people where I don't believe they're going to come after me because they were treated fairly. So I think that's the greatest defense against being sued being totally transparent. I'm curious if any of the artists' estates have reached out to you at all regarding your services, and if they haven't, do you think they're happy that someone else is authenticating works rather than no authentication service existing, or do you think they prefer that there were no services at all? You know, th that's really a good question. What I did was, when I started out just doing Warhol exclusively, I wrote a very nice letter to the Warhol board the key people there, some of the key people at the Catalog Raisonné project, 
and pretty much announcing, this is what I'm doing. I hope to do it well. I hope to do it with integrity. If I come across anything that I think is unusual or interesting that might be relevant to future volumes, let's say, of the catalog raisonate, I'll bring it to your attention. So I tried to demonstrate to them that I, you know, I'm taking this obviously seriously. I, I'm respectful toward the work, and I'm a team player. I, you know, I'm not hiding anything. I'm being upfront with you, and this is what we're doing, and we hope to do it well. Now, the funny thing is, I didn't hear back from any of them uh, at the Warhol board or the Catalog Raisonne project. Didn't hear a word, which I initially took as a good sign. I assumed if it really bothered them or they were upset about it, they would have gotten back in touch with me. Now that we're about a year out, what I ultimately concluded is they're just done with it. They're, they're tired. They've had enough. <laughs> they don't, I don't think they care one way or another what I'm doing. I think their attitude is, great, let someone else do it. On the other hand, I don't think they're you know, looking to send people my way either. I just think they don't want to do, do any of this anymore. They've washed their hands of it. Um, I did the same thing with Basquiat and Herring when I added those two artists. Same approach, letters to key people, same result. Heard nothing. And I'll take it the same way. I just think these people are done with it. Well, it really is fascinating, uh, the work you're doing with Warhol, Basquiat, and Herring. We'll definitely want to keep uh, up to date with you to hear how things progress with your two new artists. And before we let you go, um, we always admired your interesting takes on the art markets and any insights you had. And so we wanted to get your sense of the pulse of the art market now and if you have any general thoughts on where the market is or headed or even uh, some of the hot topics being discussed by insiders such as yourself at the moment? Well, um, I don't know if I'm an insider anymore. Insider, <laughs> um, outsider, an, yeah. Insider, outside. No, to be an insider these days, you literally have to be on the road, you know, at least twice a month. You have to attend as many art fairs as you can. You have to attend as many auctions as you can. And you have to do it internationally. And I know few people who can do that anymore. It's just too time-consuming and too expensive to live that life. That being said, of course, I do follow the market, and I follow it, I'd like to believe, with a keen eye, but an open mind as well. Um, my take these days is that, um, well, it's, 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 again, no one, no one really knows. Um, you look at what you read about Sotheby's and Christie's, for instance, and how they're talking about the art market is slowing down, we're grossing less money, our expenses have risen. Um, and everybody takes that as, you know, the word of God, so to speak. This is just how it is. Well, there's always more nuances and subtleties to this picture. One of them is that there are a lot of private sales that go down that you and I don't know about. There's a lot that happens outside of the auction houses, and I can't emphasize that enough. And to prove that it's really true, you're going to be hearing about both Sotheby's and Christie's doing more and more private sales, because as they've pointed out, the margins are better for them. Um, there's a lot of talk about Sotheby's bringing in this art agency partner, partners company and paying $50 million plus another $25 million and potential bonuses. In talking to people in, in the business, everybody shakes their head. They don't know what to make of it. I think they were smart to bring in those people 
because they're obviously talented and they obviously are well-connected and have bona fide clients that can certainly spend a lot of money with some of these. I think that's real smart. Spending $50 million, <laughs> I don't know what that means. I don't know what the truth really is, but it, it must be true because they're a, a pub, publicly, uh, excuse me, traded company. Um, but in terms of what you're going to see in the next six months, um, boy, it's always, the pattern seems to be that the blue chip material, I mean, the bluest of the blue chip paintings that are a scale, uh, scale of one to 10 or a nine or better, there's going to be incredible demand for that. But it seems like people are hanging on to those paintings. And if the auction houses don't want to give guarantees, and that's what they're saying, they don't want to do that anymore, or they'll do it only on rare occasion, it's going to be high, very hard to pry those paintings loose from people. Because the people who own these $20 million, $50 million, or even $100 million paintings generally aren't under financial duress. They're going to hold on to them. They believe in the art market. They believe in the long term. And they're just going to sit with it if they believe what they're holding is the best. And that becomes the key to it. As time goes on, it always, you know, and art becomes more of a, you know, financial asset. People, they realize the only money you're going to make is if you own the best. And if things go south, it's your only protection. There's always going to be a market for something that's, from the best period by the best artists, always. May go down a little, but you're gonna, you know, you're gonna be able to there'll be some liquidity if things change. The rest of the stuff, I don't see it. And lastly, uh, we were before we started the podcast, we were discussing the very recent story related to Alec Ball. Oh yeah. yeah. Is that something you based on all of your experiences you wanna share your reaction to reading that? Yeah, well that's fun. Okay, let's, you know, this is the fun stuff. Um, This just happened yesterday. It was in the New York Times, and everyone's talking about this because it's it's just such a great story. It's got everything in it. Celebrities, money, famous artists, famous dealers. It's it's an amazing thing. But in all seriousness, um, it really makes you wonder how these things happen because you wonder, on the one hand, what each party was thinking. What was Alec Baldwin thinking when he got this painting, took it home, hung it, and didn't realize it wasn't the painting he thought he had bought? The truth of the matter is, if you're an art enthusiast and you have great enthusiasm for a specific painting, in other words, you know, he claims he was carrying a picture of this painting around with him at all times so he could always look at it. If you really love something that much, I don't care what it is, whether it's a painting, a piece of sculpture, a drawing, or it could be any collectible. It could be a stamp, a coin, a baseball card. If you love something that much and you've been fixated on something like this for years and you finally get it, your ship comes in, you get to buy it, you get it home, you put it on display, you're going to know instantaneously whether that's the real deal or not. There's, There's just no other answer to this. Now, whether, you know, what was going through Mary Boone and Ross Blechner's head, well, you could kind of, you could kind of guess that. Um, the thing that fascinates me is that, if the, what the papers say are true, is that she said she had the painting lined up, was able to get it from uh, the previous owner, the Blechner, that had come up at auction, the one Alex always wanted, 
And she was going to cut him a great deal and add even less than 10% as a profit for her on the deal. She claimed she was buying it for 175000 was only charging him one ninety. And if, again, what we've read is true, and Baldwin paid the one ninety, and I assume Mary Boone splits 50-50 with Ross Bleckner, Wow, what did they just make? <laughs> you know, uh, ninety-five thousand apiece. You know, uh, <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, that's really crazy. But why any dealer would risk her reputation, and why any artist would risk his reputation like this? I mean, you always get caught. Ten times out of ten, you get caught. It may be later than sooner, but you always get caught. It, it, it's hard to believe this happened. On the other hand, it's given us something to talk about. So. <laughs> exactly. It's definitely fascinating. <laughs> fascinating it is story. fascinating. And it's, pro- and it's not over. There'll, there'll be more to it. No, I'm sure. it's not over. No. And it's, you know, the last thing I'll say about that is even though we're all vastly entertained by this stuff, it's never good publicity for the art market. Well, Richard, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and speaking with us about uh, Basquiat and Herring, who you're now adding to your art authentication services. And if our listeners want to learn more about your art authentication services, what's the website they can visit? Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. If they go to www.richardpolskyart.com, that's richardpolskyart.com, they'll see my website and We'll see a picture of me with Andy Warhol 30 years ago when I was at a studio. And um, it's a cherished picture of mine. So um, I'm glad to share it and proud of it. So thank you. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Richard, thanks so much for coming on and chatting with us. We always enjoy it. Okay. Thanks a lot, Adam. Talk to you soon. Thanks again to ArtBase for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Did you know that ArtBase is the best love software in the art world? That's because ArtBase offers products that do everything you need to run your art business. Track your art in your contacts and cross-reference them. Make invoices, generate consignments, run all kinds of reports. Even use it on your iPhone or iPad, at art fairs, or while you're away. Take it from the thousands of happy ArtBase clients all over the world. ArtBase is the right software for your art business. Visit ArtBase.com to find out more.